Lord, even as we say these words and, and wrap up the Lord's Prayer, it is good to remember that yours belong the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Therefore, you are able to lead us away from temptation. You are able to deliver us from the evil one. You are able to sanctify us in the truth. And we pray, Lord, that that's exactly what you would do as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we continue this study of building life together, we're going to look this morning in the book of 1 Peter. So I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. I think I have them there initially, what, verses 1 through 11. I'm actually going to look at 9 through 12, but I'll read 1 through 12. How about that? So you see, you have to have your Bible open. You can't always rely on what I have on the screen because I like those last-minute changes. 1 Peter chapter 2, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame." So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people." Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's Word. Would you please have a seat? Well, as I mentioned, we, we're pausing, we've paused our look in the Psalms to take these three weeks to consider uh, how do we build life together, uh, and particularly we're seeking to emphasize the small groups and the, the importance of being part of a small group from a practical perspective of what it means to be part of the church, what it means to be part of God's people. And last week we looked at Acts chapter 2, really focusing in on verse 42, which talks about one of the primary characteristics, or perhaps the primary characteristics that we see of these first original believers who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When they were convicted by the preaching of Peter in Jerusalem, and he says, and they ask, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And as they do and respond, what it says is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And the key thing that I was hoping that you would take away from that is that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to being part of this body. 
it's such a significant thing to devote yourself. And, and from a practical spe- standpoint, we could, we could uh, interpret the word devotion to a group as a commitment to a group. And commitment is a very practical thing in terms of helping relationships develop. I mean, think about commitment really as the foundation of a good, solid marriage. We talk about building a marriage on Christ, of course, we mean that. But in terms of practical application, to be committed to each other in a marriage allows the relationship to flourish and to thrive and to grow. For if you, if you don't have a commitment within your marriage, then you are going to be cautious around your spouse, afraid perhaps that you might not measure up and you may be rejected. If, if you're not certain that they are committed to you, then you're going to put up walls. You're going to seek perhaps even to manipulate or control the, the, the image that your spouse sees of you because there is a fear of not being approved of, not being affirmed, not being received, of being rejected. But if there is that foundation of commitment, if you know that your spouse is committed to you, then you don't have to fear the fact that, yes, you are going to upset your spouse every once in a while, maybe, maybe more often than every once in a while but you're not afraid that they're going to leave you as a result. There is room to confess wrongdoing and know that you'll be received. There is the ability to to tear down those walls that we tend to bring up to protect ourselves from the pain of life and the pain of relationships so that your your relationship can become more intimate. You can become wiser. You can become more appreciative of each other. You can know each other at a much greater and deeper level, and that allows you yourself to grow as a person. Now, think about that in terms of that, the kinds of commitment, in terms of, of being a part of a church body, the same kind of thing goes. There is a necessity that we first are willing to commit ourselves to being part of the body that God has brought together to be His people. Because in the context of that body, as we were looking at last week, this is the place where God has chosen for His Spirit to dwell. Even in these opening verses of 1 Peter chapter 2, we read about how they're being built into a spiritual house for God to dwell in. This is the place of all the places of all the earth, of all the universe, which God, of course, extends. There is some unique aspect of His presence that dwells in the house of God as His people are gathered together. And the fundamental problem that we have is that we are not holy and we need to be holy, which means we have to have a heart transplant, as it were. The problem, you see, is our hearts. And the one who does that heart transplant, that heart surgery, is the Holy Spirit. And if we want Him to be at work in our lives, we have to go where He is doing that work. And where is He doing it? Well, where does He dwell? In the spiritual house made up of the living stones that are God's people. That's the context in which He is doing that work on your heart. Now, that's the, that's the, the ethereal, the large picture, the, the how and the practicality of how that works is because we are willing to be committed to one another. Which again, if we know that we are committed to one another, it's okay, it's safe to go and talk to somebody with things that might be hard for them to hear. If you don't have a sense that they're committed to you, then you won't go say hard things because you're going to be afraid they're going to leave. I can't tell you as a pastor, I look at people in the congregation who I know need to be confronted with things, but I'm afraid to do so because I've fear if I go tell them that they're living in this way, they're just going to go down the street and find another church. It's a very real fear that affects us. Whether it should or not, it does. Because there's not this 
trust that people are actually committed to the body. And, you know, broadly speaking, in kind of American evangelical church, that's kind of been what we see, isn't it? There's a very loose affiliation with the church. And as soon as the church does something that doesn't meet an expectation or says something that you don't perhaps fully agree with or you like or you feel confronted or you get your feelings hurt, well, you just go down the street. There's lots of good churches in town. Just go find another one. And you think, what's the big deal? I'm part of the broad picture of the body of Christ. Well, the problem is what you've done is you've, you've circumvented the very means that God has put in place for your growth. Because how do you get to the place in a relationship where people can speak things to you that may be hard for you to hear? It takes a long time for those kinds of relationships to develop. You can't be a peripheral member of the body of Christ and ever expect those things to happen. How do we expect iron to sharpen iron as one man sharpens another if those two men aren't close enough to know how and where the rough edges that need to be worked off are? So there has to be time to develop, uh, time and commitment to develop those kinds of relationships within the body of Christ, practically speaking. And as soon as you leave, you have left a hole for others because you're no longer there to confront them, and they're no longer there to confront you, and now you have to start all over in building those relationships. What do they say? The average people shift their set of friends every seven years because the pain and the frustration is just too great, so they, got to try, they want to start over. So there has to be that measure of commitment. That's what last week was about, being devoted to this fellowship, to the body of Christ. As we look at this one, there's another image that Peter is using. He does reference the spiritual house aspect, but he's talking specifically about uh, you being God's people. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And if there's one thing, last week the one thing I wanted you to take away is devote yourself to the body of Christ. This week the one thing I want you to take away is to know this, you are God's people. And you weren't before. In fact, you weren't any people before. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. It's not, it's not now you are God's person's which I think is the way we want to interpret that. You know, it's all that Christianity is all about me and a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's the extent of it. No, it's not. Jesus came to die for his bride, for a body, for a people, not for persons, but for a people, a people. You are God's people. I want to walk through what Peter has to say about that. First of all, to understand, well, what exactly is God's people? What does it look like? Why is it that there is a people? And how did these people come to be? So the what, the why, and the how of God's people. So let's look at that real quick as we look at this passage. And and we're going to look, starting in verse 9, to see this specifically. He says, "'You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession.'" What are the people of God? That's what they are. That's how he's describing them. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, if we break those down a little bit, the key word in that first aspect is you are a chosen race. You are chosen. You are chosen. Now, have you ever been chosen? You ever been on the the playground on recess during elementary school 
and a, and a game breaks out, maybe it's, maybe it's kickball, maybe it's soccer, maybe it's football or something else, maybe it's Red Rover, Red Rover, remember that game, or dodgeball or something. But to have to divide into two teams, and you have two team captains, and what do they do to make those teams? They, they choose people. Now, if you're not one of the team captains, and you're out in the rest of the group, what is the one thing that you want? Yeah, to be chosen. Because to not be chosen is devastating. My gosh, we have the whole counseling industry that exists built up because those kids in, re- at play- in elementary school didn't get chosen, at least not chosen early. And now they're trying to unpack all the damage that was done. We long to be chosen. Because somehow to be chosen, especially to be chosen first, is we interpret as a measure of, of worth, as a measure of something affirming. And if you think about the way kids choose, now, when you're an adult, things may go a little bit differently. When you're an adult, uh, my son was telling me about they play volleyball, they divide into teams, and, you know, we're looking for, we're trying to be strategic. We're looking for the skilled players, and that's who we want to choose first. But when you're at elementary school, there's not a whole lot that separates one kid from another. So the key factor in choosing is how close you are with the captain. So it's not by him choosing you as saying, well, you're the most skilled player. By choosing you, he's, he's communicating some kind of personal relationship, some affirmation, some approval, some love that he has for you. And that's the kind of choosing that we see God doing. When He says, you're a chosen race, what He's saying is, you are a loved race. Now, if we think about when He first did this in, in, in Israel, when He was talking about them, the context that Peter is drawing upon is the language that's used in the book of Exodus when the Israelites had been brought out of Egypt. You know, they were enslaved in Egypt for the 400 years. God raised up Moses. He went to Pharaoh. He confronted him. God did all the mighty works and He brought them out. And He brings them to Mount Sinai, where God had previously met Moses. And there He says some interesting things in Exodus 19. He talks about them. And He says this in chapter 19 of Exodus. says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. That's such an image. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how, this is the imagery He wants you to see, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, from what I, the little I understand about how eagles will work with their young is, is when their young are a certain age and need to, be, need to learn how to fly, they will push them out of the nest. And if they, if they just let them be, they will fall to their deaths because they're not ready. So the eagle will swoop down and catch them on their back and bear them to where they need to go till they get used to the experience teaching them how to fly. So that's the image that God has chosen to use. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. There's this picture of the mother eagle who greatly cares for her young, pushing them out of this place of confinement to a place where they will one day be free and fly. I bore you on eagle's wings. I have that kind of close connection and concern for you and brought you to myself. 
Then he goes on, there therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is where we get that language that he's using. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples. I choose you to be the ones that I treasure. I treasure. I think we get, conf- we get sometimes carried away with the idea of what does it mean to be chosen, and we think of, we think of, of, of exclusiveness and the exclusive nature of Christianity. But to be chosen is a demonstration of God's love. He's saying, I choose you because I love you. I am choosing you in order to treasure you. You are my people that I might treasure you. So that's the first thing. You are a a chosen race. You are a chosen race. And the next he says, you are a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. Now remember, when Egypt or when Israel was coming out of Egypt, they had not yet been given the instructions to build the tabernacle. They had not yet, yet been assigned to have priests and the sacrificial system. That all came when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the instructions for how are you to live now that I brought you out of Egypt. So they weren't familiar necess- with the description of a priest that we would find from ancient Israel in the, in the way that ancient Israel practiced priests. All they knew was the priesthood of what went on in Egypt. And the priests in Egypt were people that were special. They were unique they had a unique and special place of privilege because they had unique access to the gods. They were given unique access to the gods. They spent the time in the temple. The people couldn't access the gods, but the priests could access the god. And that's what God is saying. Look, you are a royal priesthood. You are the ones of all the people on the earth. I am giving special access to me. Now, of course, he gave them Moses that instruction to build that tabernacle while he was on the mountain. And what was the purpose of that? The purpose of the tabernacle was so that God Himself could dwell in their midst. Even as the prophets would talked about uh, how you are to tell one another to know the Lord, but you won't need to do that one day because you will all know the Lord. Why will you all know the Lord? Because you will all are function as priests. You are a priesthood. You have been given unique special, privileged access to me. You are God's people. You have access to me. You can come close to me. And it's not just a priesthood, it's a royal priesthood. And when you think, what does that mean? What does a royal mean? Well, to be a royal in ancient times meant you were part of the king's family. That's what it meant to be royal. So he's not only saying, I grant you special access to me, but you're not just coming to me as a servant who has access to me, you're coming to me as a family member who has access to me. You are my treasured possession. I chose you. I love you. And I'm granting you special, unique access to me, not as a servant, but as a family member. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation a holy nation. The word holy simply means to be set apart. I am setting you apart from all the other peoples on the earth. To be what? To be a nation. 
Now, here's what this is important to note because we, again, we tend to think in individualized terms that all that's really important is about a bunch of individuals who have personal relationships with, with God through Jesus Christ. But he's saying, no, no, I didn't pull you out to be just a loose band of people. I brought you out to be a nation. A nation is united together. A nation is defined by its constitution, right? In the United States, one of the things up in arms is people want to do away with the constitution. But that's what defines us as a nation. Well, what defined Israel as a nation? It was God's covenant with them. When Moses went up on the mountain for those 40 days, God was giving him what they call the book of the covenant, describing to them, now that I have brought you out to belong to me, and you get to have special access to me, that means you are holy and you have to be holy. You have to be like me, and this is how you are to live as a result. But you are a nation. This defines who you are. This defines who you are. You are a people. So that when people looked at you, what they saw is you as a citizen of something greater than yourself. They saw you as part of a nation, not just on your own. You were part of a nation. So that's the first thing. If we look at what is God's people, those are the descriptors that we would use. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, which is kind of included in that. And if you want to think about an illustration that helps you see that, I think about his own possession. When we think about someone possessing another people, maybe it takes us back into a controversial area of the days of, of when, when, and I guess it still goes on, but you have slaves, right? You have, now whether, whatever kind of slavery you want to think of, if you, you, you can imagine that there are the, a bunch of people dressed in rags, poorly fed, malnourished, and they're on a block and they're being sold to an owner. An owner buys that slave, and what does he have to do? One, he has to spend money. Two, he has to clean them all up. He's got to feed and care for them and bring them into his, his household. Well, if you think of that we are a people for God's own possession, I know we don't like to use that image because slavery has such a connotations associated with it, but this is the idea. We are on that block, spiritually malnourished, dressed in rags, who have to be cleaned up, and the way that God cleans it up requires His shedding of His own blood, brought into His house, and paid a great price for. So all of these are pictures or very positive images of how God sees His people. This is how God sees you. He bought you at a great price. He cleaned you up. He brought into His house that you might be a member of His family with unique special access to Him, that you might be treasured among all the peoples of the earth. So that's what the people of God. Well, why are the people of God? Why does God make us to be a people of God? In verse 9, the second half of that verse really hits it. So, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So that's why He did it. I'm making you into a people so that you might proclaim the excellencies of God. Now, how do we do that? Think about how we do that. I mean, the obvious way we would do it with our voices, with our mouths, we come together on a Sunday morning to worship, and we are proclaiming the excellencies 
of God. But in order to proclaim the excellencies of God, what do you have to, what, what has to happen first? You have to know what those are. <laughs> those have to be revealed to you. You have to have been in God's presence to see His excellencies in order to proclaim His excellencies. And that, of course, couldn't happen unless God had first chosen you, brought you close, made you family, and opened your eyes to see that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, one, He has given you purpose. I think this is really important because, again, kind of the, the broad evangelical view of salvation is that God saves you from hell. He saves you from wrath. He saves you from punishment. God died on the cross so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. And we often stop there to think that salvation means just being saved from something. But that's really only a minor part. I mean, it's, I know it's big. <laughs> but the bigger part is it's not that He's saving you from something. He's saving you to something. That's the whole point. Can you imagine if God, uh, after calling Moses and sending him to Pharaoh, and he does all these great things, bringing all these plagues down, splitting the sea in two, leading them, leading them by fire at night and the cloud by day, crashing these waves of the Red Sea back upon the Egyptian army, wiping them all out. I mean, all these mighty things to set them free from slavery, and then they said, okay, you're free. Go on. Go do whatever you want. You know where they were? They were in the wilderness. <laughs> if He had just saved them from their slavery in Egypt, and that was the end of it, they would have died a lot faster than they would have in slavery, actually. But that wasn't His point. His point was to bring them to the mountain where He had met Moses and make them into a people, a people with a very specific purpose. Now, we can trace the purpose back to their father, Abraham, who was initially called out and says, I will call you, I'll make you into a great nation through whom I will bring blessing to all the world. There is this notion that you exist for a purpose, and that purpose is not only to proclaim the excellencies to God and worship, to proclaim the excellencies of God to the rest of the world. Now, we can do that in words, we can certainly do that with words, and we should do that in words as we learn about the character and the nature of God, because that's what we do when we come close. We learn that God is, is a loving God. Yes, He's a righteous God and that He judges, but He's a loving God, and He rescues and He forgives, and He is faithful God, and He is steadfast in His faithfulness. He's a powerful God. He is a patient God. There is no way to learn these particular characteristics about God unless you have been in His presence and He has revealed them to you by exercising them with you. So that when you are proclaiming the excellencies of Him, you are literally giving testimony of your being brought out of darkness into His marvelous light, and you've recognized that that light is indeed marvelous. When you see something marvelous in your life, don't you feel a sense of compulsion to talk about it? I mean, when you finish reading a really good book, you are desperate for someone to talk about it with, 
Or how many of you go see this wonderful, great movie by yourself? It's like, it, it's, it's, you can't fully appreciate it until you're able to express something about it. What is the story, the, the, the old joke about the pastor who decides to, to play hooky on a Sunday to go play golf, and on that day of golf, he hits a hole in one? But he can't tell anybody about it because he'd be admitting playing hooky, right? There's this idea that you want to share those things that you find marvelous. It's a natural expression. But here's the other thing about it. It's not just that we see His marvelous light. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, it's not only that I, that I see God, but I see everything by the light of God. In God's light, suddenly I see what things really are. Remember, He brought you out of darkness. I couldn't really understand or see clearly what the world was like. But in the light of God's marvelous light, now I do. Now I see it. Now it makes sense. And this is really what makes you different from the way those who live without this marvelous light. They, 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 they live their life according to the, the current of culture, as it were, because that's what makes sense. That's where things are going. This is what the culture and society has said, I need to do or I need to live in such a way because that's normal, that's right, that's going to bring me fulfillment or a sense of happiness. But if you see light, if you see life, excuse me, in the light of God's light, then there are times when things that the world says is okay, you don't see the same way. There is a difference. I mean, think about, for example, abortion, right? In the, in the light of God's light, we would see those unborn babies as, as souls that have been created in the image of God. We would have uh, the sixth commandment that says, you shall not kill. And we understand that abortion is wrong. But that's not something that's normally understood by most people in our society and culture without that light. What do they see instead? They see an unwanted pregnancy that is causing damage to a mother who's not in a position to care for this baby. It's going to wreck her life. Now, we also see in this marvelous life, we can also see, yes, there are these precious young potential mothers who are put in a position that this is going to completely change the trajectory of where they see themselves going. So in the marvelous light of God, we not only see the compassion and the care for the baby, but we also see the compassion and the care for this mother who finds herself in a situation that she doesn't want to be in. But rather than giving her the, the, the solution to, well, the solution to your problem is to go abort your baby, there has to be a different solution. And places like help, the Pregnancy Help Center have married these two compassions together, providing these women with counseling and medical care and concern and helping to direct them to get the resources they need. Now, it may still not be the life they had planned for themselves, but here's a way that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him according to the light we see that shines on the rest of the world. That's just one example where you might see things differently than our culture and yet learn how to speak to them in the light of God's excellency. Because how does God speak to us when we're wrong? We tend to think He's like this, you know, stern grandfather who wants to slap us on the wrist or smack us down, but that's not. He's, he, is a, he is a patient God. He is a compassionate God. He does allow things to go about in our life 
to help train us and to teach us. He does bring us into groups like this who can speak truth to us if we've been there long enough to commit ourselves and devoted and, and allowed people to speak freely in our lives. But He still loves us. He still cares for us. He's still concerned for us. And we ought to be the same way because we see these excellencies of Him to the rest of the world. And we proclaim the excellencies of, his, of, of the God we see in His marvelous light, not only with our words, but in, our, in the way that we live. If you look and see the next verse of what He says, in verse 12, "'Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation.'" So you are to keep your conduct in such a way that that itself is proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And the verse before that, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are a sojourner and exile. Why does he say that? Because he just says, I've made you into a, a holy nation. You are a nation. Your citizenship is in my kingdom. So that when you are in the world, you are not a citizen of that world. You are a sojourner. You are an exile. Now, the most famous exile perhaps we have in the Old Testament was a man by the name of Daniel. Daniel lived as an exile from Jerusalem when they were taken captured by the Babylonians. So he lived in the heart of Babylon for much of his life. And if you look at the model, what does it look like to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light by the way you live, we can look to see some great examples in what Daniel and his companions do. There's a, there was an excellent article put out by the, the Gospel Coalition this last week uh, that, that talks about this, some practical things. You know, we, 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 were, we don't eat from the king's table, and yet we seek to bring blessing to the nation in which we find ourselves living. So we avoid the delicacies that culture says we ought to consume, risk being persecuted as a result of it, and yet offer ourselves to be the blessing for the nation. But that's what Daniel was. Daniel was a wise counselor to the king so that Babylon itself would find favor and blessing and prosperity. So when you think about your occupation, for example, rather than think of yourself as an engineer who happens to be a Christian, you think of yourself as a follower of Christ, a citizen of Christ's kingdom, who has seen the excellencies of Him who calls you out of darkness into His marvelous light, with the opportunity to serve as an engineer in a way that proclaims these excellencies, or to practice law as a way of proclaiming these excellencies, or fixing plumbing or house repairs or car repairs or whatever it is that you do. You're doing that not first because you are that occupation, but first you are a citizen of a kingdom, and that's the place that God has put you as a way of living out the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, that's the why. What is the how? How has God made you a people for Himself? This is verse 10 where it really tells us, and it's so simple. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. I mean, that's it. Why are you God's people? Because you have now received mercy. You know what mercy is? Mercy is receiving of, of something you did not deserve. It's not being punished for what you do deserve. God is not treating you as you deserve. He is showing you favor that you did not deserve. That's mercy. Very simple. Once you hadn't received it, now you have. The result of that mercy has made you part of the people of God. Once you were not a people, now are you the people of God. Why? Because now you have received mercy. Now you have received mercy. Of course, we know what that mercy is. We know the way that God has put it on display when He sent Jesus Christ, His only Son, into the world to live as He did, living the life that we were expected to live, we were created to live and failed, and going to the cross to die the death that we deserve to die so that justice could actually be meted out on our sin and God could extend mercy on those He's chosen to bring into His family. Remember, you weren't that kid on the playground who was picked because you were the best football player or soccer player or Red Rover player. You were picked because you were loved. It was a merciful gesture. You may be the worst kickball player chosen, but you knew the team captain and he loved you. So you were first picked. You were shown mercy. This is the God we worship. You are God's people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have made us your people by the mercy of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. We are grateful, Lord, that you have made us a people with a purpose to proclaim your excellencies with our words and with our deeds to the world. We are grateful, Lord, that you have made us a people that are your own possession, that you have given us unique special access to you, that you've made us part of your family, that you chose us, that you might show us that we are treasured in your house. Lord, would you help us to drink deeply this truth in as we commit ourselves to being part of this body which belongs to you, this people which is yours. In Jesus' name, amen.